Welcome to Scholastic Reads, our podcast about books, authors, and the joy and power of reading. I'm your host, Suzanne McCabe, Editor-at-Large at Scholastic. Thank you for joining us. I always thought that I was there to give voice to Shakespeare, Sondheim, or Ibsen, or Chekhov. I never realized my voice was in this world to give voice to Farad Nouri or Farad Faiz or any of these beautiful families that we've met. It is one of the privileges of my life. If you say to me, well, what are you doing for them? I'm telling their story. That was Mandy Patinkin. You may know the actor and singer from his roles in The Princess Bride, the Showtime series Homeland, or as the voice of Papa Smurf in the recent movie Smurfs, The Lost Village. Over the past few years, Mandy and his wife, actress and writer Catherine Grody, have worked with the International Rescue Committee. They've traveled to refugee camps in Greece and Serbia to meet with Syrian refugees and listen to their stories. We must find a way to give everyone an equal existence on our shared planet, Mandy says. I will work until my last breath to tell these stories. We'll hear more from Mandy and Catherine later in the episode. First, I'm excited to introduce you to novelist Alan Gratz, who is also telling the stories of refugees. Alan is the author of several books for young readers, including the acclaimed Prisoner B-3087, a novel based on the true story of Jack Gruner, a boy who survived 10 concentration camps during the Holocaust. Today, we'll be talking about Alan's most recent novel, Refugee. It's the kind of book that will leave your heart both a little more full and a little more broken. Refugee follows three children living in three different eras, fleeing three different evils. Joseph is a Jewish boy in 1930s Nazi Germany. With the threat of concentration camps looming, he and his family board a ship bound for the other side of the world. Isabel is growing up in Cuba in 1994. With riots and unrest plaguing her country, she and her family set out on a raft, hoping to find safety and freedom in America. Mahmoud is living in Syria in 2015. With his homeland torn apart by war and violence, he and his family begin a long trek toward Europe. Hi, Alan. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. Congratulations on your extraordinary book. We're so excited for you. Thanks. I'm really excited about this book and um, very eager for it to be out in the world. I can imagine. Alan, could you tell our listeners how you came to write this particular story? Sure. I was, I'd start, it started for me with the MS St. Louis. It was a story that my editor, Amy Friedman, turned me on to. I hadn't heard of the MS St. Louis. It's a famous story I've come to learn, the subject of books and plays and films and even an opera, but I hadn't heard it. And it was the story of a ship full of Jewish refugees who left Nazi Germany right before World War II began in 1939, trying to get to freedom in Cuba. Many of them hoped to live in Cuba, but many more 
hoped to use Cuba as a way station for getting into the United States. The United States at the time had very strict immigration quotas, and they had accepted as many Jewish immigrants as they were going to accept that year. And so these Jews had to get out of Germany. They wanted to get to America. So they went to Cuba hoping that that would be a temporary place of refuge for them until they could be accepted into the United States. Then when they got to Cuba, they found out that Cuba was not going to let them in, and America didn't let them in, and Canada didn't let them in, and they ended up turning back to go back to Europe right before World War II began. And they were taken in by a number of different countries. Those who made it into England survived. Those who were accepted into countries like Belgium and into France and the Netherlands, they were right in Hitler's way when he invaded those countries just a few months later. So I was looking for a way into this story. You know, when I write for kids, kids are my main characters. So how is I going to tell a story about a child experiencing the journey of the MS St. Louis? Because it's a very passive story. If you're a passenger, you're not doing much besides being taken to some place. It's a fascinating story. And once they're turned away from Cuba, it becomes a very active story for those refugees. But for a lot of the story, there wasn't there wasn't a lot of plot. And I wanted to tell the story but I couldn't find a way into the story. Well, right around that time, my family and I were on vacation in Florida. We were visiting the Florida Keys, and we went out to walk on the beach one morning, and we ran into a raft. It was a raft that refugees had used to come to America in the night. No one was aboard it. They had already left the raft. I don't know what their fate was. I don't know if there were people on it when it washed ashore. But inside was the detritus of their journey, water bottles, candy that they had in bags to eat, discarded clothing. And there was also the stripped down engine of what maybe was a car or a motorcycle in a former life. I'm not a mechanic, I don't know, but they had stripped something down and bolted it to the bottom of this homemade raft that was put together with with uh, wood and and metal siding like like you'd see on a like metal roofing pieces from a house. And they had used great stuff. The, st the stuff that comes in a can that you use to seal around windows to spray in the whole bottom of the thing to make it float. And I was stunned by this. And my family and I, we talked about it. We walked around it. We looked at it. And it made us really question our own privilege, our own freedom, really, really examine those and realize that made me realize I took those for granted every day. And it reminded me that people were putting their lives on the line every day, every single day to come to this country right here and right now. You know, I often hear stories about refugees or or see a news report, but it's so distant from me. It's something that that isn't right in front of me. I don't live at the border of Mexico. I don't live at the border of Canada. I don't live on the coast where where these rafts might wash up. I don't see it. I don't experience it every day. Not until that day. And I thought, what can I do about this? How could I write about this? How could I bring attention to this situation? Well, Right at that same moment, of course, every night we were going back to our room and seeing news reports about the Syrian refugee crisis. And we were seeing the, the millions of Syrians dislocated by that crisis and, and pushed out of their own country by the events of the Syrian civil war and looking for refuge in other countries and crossing the Mediterranean, trying to get to Europe. And then the European countries turning them away. And of course, in this moment, when all three of these things were there in my mind, they all came together. 
And I began to see the parallels. I began to see the parallels between Jewish refugees being turned away from country after country and Syrian refugees being turned away from country after country and Jewish refugees making this perilous trip on board a ship and Cuban refugees making a perilous trip aboard a raft and Syrian refugees making a perilous trip across the Mediterranean on a raft and the parallels between the dictators in their countries and the crises that they were fleeing. All these things came together and I thought, wait a minute. Why tell one story? Why just tell the story of MS St. Louis? Why just tell the story of Cuban refugees? Why just tell the story of Syrian refugees? They are all connected. We keep doing the same thing over and over and over again. And I really wanted to find a way to put the Jewish refugees in, in the historical context and show that that same thing is happening in the world today and that we don't seem to be learning from the lessons of the past. And so it was that moment when all of those three things came together for me. I still needed to find a way to link those stories so they didn't just feel like three concurrent stories with parallels. And that took some time, took a number of walks, me kicking it around until I found the connections between the characters. And that I don't want to spoil because that I think is one of the big reveals of the book at the end to see how these kids, besides the parallels in the stories, to see how these kids are actually related and connected through time. And so that was really the genesis of of the whole story for me, putting all three of those three stories together. To me, it doesn't work without any one of those three kids. It needs all three of them to tell this complete picture of the way that kids are thrown into refugee situations decade after decade after decade. Thank you, Alan. As you know, stories about the Holocaust and the horrors its victims endured are readily accessible, but we can't say the same for the stories of Cuban or Syrian refugees. Why did you choose to focus on those stories, and how did you find information to create the characters of Isabel and Mahmoud? Yeah, there are a lot of books about the Holocaust. I've written one myself, Prisoner B-3087. You know, World War II saw one of the largest refugee crises in human history. And the Syrian refugee crisis is the largest refugee crisis since World War II. And I wanted to be able to tell a story that that covered the refugee situation that that was about today's world, that, that put the previous refugee crises of World War II and the ongoing one in Cuba in perspective, in historical context. So I had to do a lot of research for those two that were very different than my research for the MS St. Louis. For the MS St. Louis, there are books, there are plays, there's a film, there's even an opera that covers the MS St. Louis. This is a, a story that is that has been told a number of times and there's a lot of research done about it because it was so famous. For my other stories, I had to do research that was very different from that. I there, there are fewer books about the Cuban refugee crisis. There are some, and I found those and used those in my research. But for the, for the Cuban side of things, for Isabel's story, I really went to personal accounts of people who have come to America from Cuba on board rafts. And I found those accounts in newspapers and magazines and in videos. So my research for that was very different than then my research for the MS St. Louis, and then my research for the Syrian story, for Mahmoud's story, was was even a bit different than the Cuban research. That is happening now. It is a contemporary, fluid situation. 
It is something that is the map that I was using changes from day to day while I was writing this and even today. So for that, I used contemporary reporting. I looked in newspapers and magazines. I used the reporting in particular of the Washington Post, the New York Times, in the UK, the Independent and the Guardian. I used Al Jazeera reporting. One of those sites, I believe it was the Post, had a daily website that would change to show the the changing lines of battle in the Syrian civil war so that you know you could keep up with who o- occupied what territory at what moment i decided to set the book in 2015 for for mahmoud's story just so that i would have some some fixed point and and i was able to go back and say okay what was what was syria and what was the middle east and what was europe like at this exact moment in time because if i were to set it when I was writing the book, it was just changing from day to day so quickly I, I couldn't stay on top of it. So all three of the characters, Joseph, Isabel, and Mahmoud, none of them is real. None of them is a real person the way, the way that uh, Jack Gruner was for a prisoner. Instead, they are amalgamations. They are combinations. They're, they're, they're me taking a number of different things that I read that happened to different people and putting them into individual characters that I created. That gave me the freedom to to tell a more comprehensive story, a more expansive story, and to to as a storyteller make sure that my story had a beginning and a middle and an end. You know, most people's lives aren't that tidy and don't have those clearly delineated pieces. But all of the things that happened to these kids are things that really happened to kids in the world, in their struggles to be free. This is such a timely book. And as you said, the situation was changing every day when you were writing. How did you handle that? I thought I was writing a timely book, and I had no idea how timely this book would really become when I was still writing it when when Trump was elected president. And one of his first actions as president was, of course, to ban refugees from Syria. When the United States already takes less than 1% of all Syrian refugees into this country. So I was rewriting the author's note at the end of the book over and over and over again until we finally had to say, that's it, it has to go to press. So that, that author's note evolved in real time as things were happening to ban Muslim immigrants to come to the country. And there were changes also, weirdly, in the, the Cuban story. There were changes to the wet foot, dry foot policy that happened while I was writing this book in a policy that had basically been in place since the 90s, since Bill Clinton was president, and really had gone back to policy set in place in the 60s during the Kennedy administration with the embargo. And suddenly, while I was writing this book, Fidel Castro died, Raul Castro took over, America reestablished communication with Cuba. We had the famous meeting brokered by the Pope with with President Obama and and Raul Castro. And we had the first commercial airliner from America landing in Cuba since the 1950s. We, you know, and and then in one of his last acts as president, President Obama got rid of wet foot, dry foot. Something that, of course, the Cuban community in America is very aware of, but I'm not sure that a lot of the other communities in America are very aware of. And he took away essentially this special status that Cuban immigrants have had since the 90s. And that's a radical change in American American policy toward Cuban immigrants. And all this was happening while I was writing this book. I, I had no idea when I set out to write it just how much of this book was going to be as timely as it is. I would happily 
trade in the timeliness of this book for for these situations not to be the terrible situations that we have in the world right now. But at least the book is coming out at a time when when middle grade readers can pick this book up and teachers can hand it to kids in the classroom and say, look at what's happening in the world and here's a book about it and now let's talk about it. Yes, absolutely. Raising awareness is the best thing we can hope for here. I think so. One of the real goals that I had with this book was I wanted to make refugees visible. Again, it it gets back to me on that beach seeing that raft. Suddenly it was visible to me. After I began writing the book, I was still doing school visits during the, the spring of that year. And I went to visit schools out on the Outer Banks in North Carolina. And I told somebody about the book that I was writing. And it was one of the teachers. And she said, oh, we get those rafts up here all the time. And I was like, what? what up in North Carolina? I mean, that's a long way. I mean, when I saw this raft, it was in the Florida Keys. That's the short trip, relatively speaking. It's 90 miles from Havana to the Florida Keys. It's much farther to go up to the outer banks of North Carolina. She drove me out to a gas station where they collect them, not collect them to put on show, but they have to take them off the beach. So they're taken off the beach and then they're collected here until they can be hauled away to the dump. And there were three rafts that people had used from the Caribbean. I don't know if they were Cuban or Haitian or where they had come from, but three different rafts that people had used, refugees had used to get to America, and they didn't hit America until the outer banks of North Carolina. And I don't even know if there were people on those rafts by the time they made it there. But again, I didn't. I don't know that this is happening. I don't see it happening every day because I don't live there, because I'm not there. And so one of the things I really wanted to do with refugee was – to make these people and their lives visible. I wanted to show you what happened to Jewish refugees in the past, but also what's still happening with Cuban refugees today, and of course what's still happening with Syrian refugees today. Make them visible to middle graders. That was really my main mission with this book. During the course of the research and the writing, what did you learn in particular about the plight of children who are put in these untenable situations and about their resilience? The resilience of these kids is amazing. Um, one of the characters in in the book, Mahmoud's younger brother, Walid, was inspired directly by a, a very famous photograph now uh, of, a, of a young boy sitting in the back of an ambulance covered from head to toe in like concrete dust, you know, his, his building, the building where he, that he was in has exploded. He's a little bit bloody. He's luckily not very injured externally, but internally you can tell in his eyes and he has seen so much in his life that, that he, he's inured to it in a way he's become statuesque. And I, this was one of the hardest things about reading about each of these three time periods was that Kids are are thrown into this situation again and again and again. It's not their of their choosing. It's nothing that they can control. They just have to roll with it. They have to deal with it as they grow up. And the UN is calling this current generation of Syrian children a lost generation, or at least warning that if we don't intervene now, these kids will become a lost generation. They are not going to school. They are not receiving any kind of proper health care. They're often not eating enough. The stress that they're going through on a daily basis is, is taking days and months and years off of their lives. And they don't receive the love that we want children to have. Their parents are doing everything they can. 
their parents are hugging them and, and comforting them and doing everything they can. But when they're in a stressful situation and they see their parents in stressful situations, they adopt that stress and they internalize it. It's heartbreaking to see the way that kids are affected by these situations. You know, I, I think it was Eglantine Webb who, who founded Save the Children many, many decades ago now, uh, said that every war is a war against children. And I, I think that that's a really interesting point, that, that, that kids are the true innocent. They are the people who get caught up in a war that they didn't start, that they can't control, and they are the ultimate victims of that, whether they perish in that war or whether they are sent on the run uh, like refugee families, like the ones I've written about. Clearly, you talk about the moral obligation to help others. How do you think reading both fiction and nonfiction helps children develop empathy? Yeah, I think that one of the ways that reading books about characters going through these situations develops empathy is it takes it from a number and a statistics situation to a personal one. We can study the Holocaust in, in the history classroom and we can find out that, that six million European Jews died, but hearing a personal story makes it different. We can hear about a refugee situation like the one in Syria and we can hear that there are millions of Syrian refugees who have been dislocated by this situation, who have left Syria and who are trying to find new homes somewhere. But until you read the situation, until you read the story of one kid going through that, I think it's hard to empathize with those folks. But for a kid, I think hearing a personal story is really an effective way of, of saying, wait, this is happening to this kid, and this is happening to all these other kids at the same time. You know, we hear about the refugee camps in, in Turkey and in Jordan and the other countries right around Syria. By showing the kids in one and, and seeing the way people live in those camps, I can teach that child what it's like to be in a camp without having it be a history lesson. And by showing that, I feel like I can, I can draw that empathy out of the kids and say, wait, what if this was me? Oh, gosh, that's so powerful, as are these three young characters. And yet, inevitably, in your book, you lead us to the story of Hitler and the Nazis, Castro and President Assad of Syria. As you researched the story, what struck you the most about the human capacity for evil? Yeah, I, one of the things I tried to do, and, and I'm glad you picked up on this, thanks for the for asking about that, is I tried to, in each of those situations, show the dictator who had forced them out. And uh, I, I didn't want to be too didactic with it, but I definitely wanted, you know, there are pictures of Hitler hanging in the MS St. Louis during its trip. While it's filled with Jewish refugees trying to escape Nazi Germany, there in the, the common room is a big picture of Hitler because, of course, there was a big picture of Hitler hanging in every ship and every home in Germany at the time. And at the same, at the same time in, in, in Castro's Cuba, there are pictures of him all over the place with inspirational messages or, or exhortations. And exactly the same way in Syria, today there are pictures of Assad all over the place, painted all over everything. And I, when I was doing my research, I thought, oh, this is one of the obvious examples of when you have a dictator, is when it's not about your flag, it's not about your country, it's about that person. It's a cult of personality that they are trying to cultivate. And their image is all over everything. And I tried to pull in that, that pervasive feeling that, that their leader in each of those situations, th those kids' leaders, were a huge part of their lives. You know, when when Castro spoke, 
all the TVs turned to uh, to his message. Whatever they were showing, all the channels would turn over to it. Uh, Assad said, I'm the boss here, and if you want to break away from me, I'm going to use chemical weapons and and my artillery and my air force against my own people. And of course, with Hitler, we know the story of World War II and, and the atrocities that he and, and, and the Nazis committed. So I, I tried to pull parallels between all of these people to show, like, this is the face of evil. This is the face of a dictatorship, and this is why they are running away. I was stunned at the number of comparisons that I was able to draw in very different situations in very different time periods. It's a very dangerous thing to say that anybody is a new Hitler. Hitler was uh, one of a kind, thank goodness, and that is the worst. I think he's the, the worst thing that's ever happened to the world. But to see the echoes of that, to see the echoes down through the ages is really interesting. And and to show kids that even though this one-time evil in World War II was the most evil thing we've ever experienced, there are still echoes of that in the world today that we need to watch out for. Staying with the topic of World War II and Hitler, as you know, there has been quite a resurgence of interest in World War II. You saw this with your previous book, Project 1065. Is it because Hitler was just this one of a kind or because there was such a decisive battle. What is it about World War II that still mesmerizes people today? Well, with middle schoolers especially, I think it gets back to that feeling of seeing the world in black and white. And boy, if you need bad guys, the Nazis are your guys. Because as much research as I've done for a number of books now about about Nazi Germany, every time I read something new, it's something worse about Nazi Germany. And like I, when I, just when I think they couldn't be more evil, just when I think it couldn't be worse, it is. And I think that, that that pure evil, I think, is so fascinating to kids and adults because we we ask ourselves, like, how in the world could this happen? Um, how in the world could could people be this evil? How could an entire, not just a person, but an entire country turn into this, do this? Uh, and I think that it's that, it's that fascination with with our own dark sides that that draws people back to World War II. I think it is, in terms of writing books about a war, a war where there was a clear bad guy and a clear reason for fighting it. You know, there are very few wars that we can that we can point to and say, yeah, we needed to do that, and the sacrifices when people gave their lives for this, that was worth it. We had to stop this. You know, we look at Korea, we look at Vietnam. Those are those are wars with very murky reasons for fighting them. There there are wars that that are still scars on our psyche. But World War II is something we hold up and we say we're proud that we were involved. We're proud that we stopped evil. And I think it's that pride, and I think it's that that clear delineation between good and evil, and and, and a righteous battle that people really respond to, and and kids especially. It's great, Alan, and it's great that you have chosen such incredibly important topics for all of your books. I'd love for you to read a section from Refugee Now. The part that I'd like to read for you is from Mahmoud's story, and it's in about the middle of the book. At this point, Mahmoud and his family have tried to cross the Mediterranean on a raft from Turkey to Greece, and they are into that journey some distance in when their raft strikes a rock and bursts and they're all tossed into the water and Mahmoud and his family are treading water. They're trying to survive. They don't know where they're going to go. They don't know how they're going to get out of the water and the life vests that they have been sold are fakes. And so they are 
going to drown if they can't get out of this. The part I want to read to you is a, a brief part where we join Mahmoud and his family in the water. Time passed. The rain stopped. The waxing moon even peeked out from behind a cloud. But just as quickly it was dark again, and the cold wind and the salty spray and the swelling sea still tormented them. Mahmoud's legs were numb with cold and exhaustion. They felt like two lead weights he struggled to lift and churn to stay afloat. His mother had been quietly sobbing for what seemed like forever. Her arms no longer held Hana above the water, but just on top of it, like she was pushing along a tiny barge. Mahmoud's father did the same with Walid, trying to save his strength. Hana had gone as quiet as Walid, and Mahmoud wondered if they were still alive. He couldn't ask. Wouldn't. If he didn't ask, he couldn't know for sure, and as long as he didn't know for sure, there was a chance they were still alive. Mahmoud slipped beneath the waves again, longer this time than the last time. It was getting so hard to come up again to keep himself afloat. He rose again, pushing air out his nose, but he was tired, so very, very tired. He wished for a respite from swimming, just a moment to sit without working his arms and legs, to close his eyes and go to sleep. Water was sloshing in and out of Mahmoud's ears, but he thought he heard a drone just above the howl of the wind. In Syria, that sound would have sent him ducking for cover, but now it made his eyes widen, his legs kick just a little harder, a little higher. There, coming at them out of the darkness, another dinghy full of people. Mahmoud and his mother and father waved their arms and cried out for help. At last, the people on board saw them, but as the dinghy came closer, it didn't slow down. They weren't going to stop. The front of the dinghy chopped past Mahmoud, and he lunged for one of the handholds along the side. He caught on and grabbed his mother before the dinghy pulled him away. He swung mom to the side of the dinghy, and she grabbed hold, the wake from it almost swamping Hana. Behind them, Mahmoud's father also reached for the dinghy, but missed. It churned along, bouncing in the chop, and Mahmoud's father and brother disappeared into the darkness. Dad! Dad! Mahmoud cried, still holding on to the dinghy. Let go! A woman in the dinghy yelled down at him. You're dragging on us. Let us in, please, Mahmoud begged. It was all his mother could do to hang on to the dinghy and to Hana. We can't. There's no room, a man inside the dinghy yelled. Please, Mahmoud begged. We're drowning. I'll call the Coast Guard for you, a man said. I have their number on my phone. Another man reached down and tried to pry Mahmoud's hand from the dinghy. You're tipping us. Please, Mahmoud cried. He sobbed with the effort of fighting off the man's fingers and hanging on to the dinghy. Please, take us with you. No, no room. At least take my sister, Mahmoud begged. She's a baby. She won't take up any room. That caused much yelling and discussion on the boat. A man tried to pry Mahmoud loose again, but he hung on. Please, Mahmoud begged. A woman appeared at the side of the boat, her arms reaching down to Mahmoud's mother, reaching for the baby. Mahmoud's mother lifted the little ball of wet blankets up to the woman. Her name is Hana, she said, struggling to be heard above the roar of the engine and the splash of the waves. Someone finally pried Mahmoud's fingers off the side, and he slipped into the water and tumbled into the dinghy's wake. When he came up, he saw his mother had let go of the dinghy too. She was crying great howling tears and tearing at her clothes. Mahmoud swam over to her and wrestled her hands into stillness, and she put her head on Mahmoud's shoulder and sobbed. Mahmoud's sister was gone, and so were his father and brother. Thank you, Alan. You're welcome. Thank you. 
It was crushing, but you show why you can't put this book down. Yeah, I sorry that that scene when I chose it, I um, I I was worried because I, I often cry at the end of it, and if I start <laughs> crying while I'm reading it, you won't be able to hear the words. So I made it this time, but trying to to be very clear to these kids that this is a life and death situation for these families, and that there is great loss. You know, hundreds of the Jewish refugees on board the MS St. Louis died in the Holocaust when they, that ship returned to Europe after being turned away from Cuba and the United States and Canada and a number of other countries. And it's estimated that three out of every five Cuban refugees who left on a raft in the 90s died on that trip. And we know that many Syrian refugees perish on that journey from Turkey to Greece. They're stuffed into dinghies that are made for 12 people, and there might be 30, 40, 50 people on those dinghies. They have no navigation equipment. They have life jackets that often don't work. Um, and the coast guards of Turkey and, and Greece and other Mediterranean countries do their best to save people when they can. But uh, part of the way that they get there is to go undercover, to, to leave when people can't see them. Um, and and therefore, the, the refugees are deliberately trying not to be seen for much of that trip. Many people die on that voyage, and I thought it would be a disservice to give any of these situations and not show loss. We, we don't know what becomes of Hannah after this moment. She's handed off, and she's not seen again for part of the book. And I think it's important for the kids to understand, the kids who are reading this to understand, that that people are lost on this voyage. People that the refugees care about, their their children, their brothers, their sisters, their mothers, their fathers. That this is a, a perilous journey and people are going through it every single day. Now we're joined in the studio by Mandy Patinkin and his wife, Catherine Grody. Mandy and Catherine recently returned from Europe, where they met with Syrian families who are living in refugee camps in Greece and Serbia. Thank you both for being here. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. Now, I want to start with asking a basic question. What led you to get involved with the International Rescue Committee? Well, that's a good question. I was shooting the fifth season of Homeland in Berlin, Germany, the very first episode of that season was in a uh, refugee camp in Syria. And then our story moved into other directions. And then at that moment in Europe, the refugee crisis exploded. 125,000 refugees were fleeing for sanctuary, many trying to get to Germany over the Balkan route. And the crisis was all around us. I was living in a fictional world, and the real world was falling apart. So as soon as the season was over... I wanted to go and literally hold some children's hands, families' hands, bring them some water, talk with them, listen to them, give them comfort because they reminded me of my own family, my Grandpa Max and Grandma Celia and my wife's Grandma Masha, and I felt connected to these people. And I couldn't understand why the world wasn't helping them, why there were no legal options. I made a few phone calls, and I immediately discovered the International Rescue Committee. Most important thing you want when you're looking for a doctor is for several people to say the same person's name. And the International Rescue Committee kept coming to the top of the list each time I made a phone call. And they took me on this journey to Lesbos in 2015. 
I met families. I met the workers. I learned a lot about the situation, the crisis. Right toward the end, the boat started coming, and a child was put in my arms who I thought had passed away. And we realized that she was suffering from epilepsy. We got her help. I helped another family get what they needed because they lost all their belongings in the water from the small boat crossing the Aegean and was able to help them move forward and get on their way in a ferry and on a land route into Germany. Is that the Alassi family? Yes, that is the Alassi family. That is such a moving story. I'd love for you to tell us a little bit more about them and what has happened with them. One of the extraordinary things that happened to us on this trip, that Catherine wasn't on the first one, but I certainly told her about it, showed her pictures of the Alassi family and Nachodar Alassi and their two beautiful boys, who reminded me of my two sons. I saw them in Karatepe initially. They were the only family left when I was there in 2015. They lost everything in the water. Every other family was moving through because they had yet to shut the doors to to the European Union. And they were left behind because they lost all their money and couldn't get the ferry to Athens and then the boat and the train into Germany. And I was able to help them do that. And this time, Catherine went back to Karatepe with me and saw the spot where I met them. And then we went to Germany. It was about two and a half hours out of Berlin. And then we had a reunion with the Alassi family, which was very emotional and uh, one of the great moments of my life to see Khadar on the street. We embraced. We held back tears. And then I saw this building next to where they lived, and, and I thought that was a school. I wasn't sure what it was. And they brought us into their beautiful home, which was as a home you'd wish for anyone you know in the whole world. And, and he was a designer, so he helped decorate it and fix the kitchen up with you know, his own skills. And the kids were already in school, mom and dad. In Germany, you go and you study language for two years, right? Yeah, it's extra- I mean, it's one of the great ironies and, and in a weird sense, one of the great optimistic proofs that you can learn from history. There was Germany with one of the worst historical episodes in the world of not being appreciating people's humanity, to say the least. And here they are. They are the welcomers, right? The teachers. The teachers. They give two years for refugee families to learn the language, to understand the culture, to get acclimated. Mom and dad. To be welcomed, the mom and dad, before the support, they expect them to support themselves. In the United States, we give 180 days. I mean, that is a very big difference in understanding the magnitude of what it means to be in a new culture. Mandy, when he first met her uh, and asked her, how did you get the courage just to leave? I mean, they lived in the forests of Serbia for two weeks, eating leaves. She had these two small boys. The Serbian... Just uh, leaves. And when she told us this story, she was just weeping profusely. And the Syrian army was there, and the rumor was that if you went to them for food, they would kill you. So there she was for two weeks with this family. And could take nothing with her. And could take nothing with her. Um, And when Mandy asked how she had the courage to, to leave, she said, I saw death behind me and life in front of me, and I ran toward life. I still can't imagine what... That must be like what it must be like for some of these parents. We saw unaccompanied minors, you know, that put these kids that look 10 on a boat and send them off, you know, because they know if they stay, there's no hope. So she was so grateful, so happy. This family had a future. Um, The kids were in school. They were speaking German. The... um, 
Hodar said that what he wanted to be trained to do was to take care of elder people because he had loved taking care of his own father. And that's what that building that Mandy didn't know if it was a school or what. Yeah, it it was an old age home home and he hoped to be able to work with older people because he loved working with them. That was his goal. He was about to take his driver's license test in Germany and and he hoped to work right next door to where he was supposed to live. And they introduced us to their neighbors. And it was very funny Mm. because it was a German family and they were saying how lovely they were and they all had little garden terraces on the, I mean we it was just walks. ironic that in Germany absolutely you know yeah. 60 years later is it there is a reckoning and I think Germany will always for certainly in my lifetime and beyond be making up for um, the horrors by doing good I never thought of it that way Could you tell us about your most recent trip to the refugee camps? What did you see this time? Well, this year was, uh, again, I was shooting Homeland as I do, um, thankfully, every year for the past six years. And at the end of the sixth season, the refugee crisis on March 20th, 2016, came into a new era. The um, European community uh, worked out a deal. $3 billion was given to um, Turkey uh, to essentially slam the door shut on the journey, the exodus. And um, so these people are now caught in limbo without any legal options. And keep in mind, before March 20th, 2016, there were zero legal options for these people other than smugglers. So it went from zero to minus zero in terms of legal options. And I wanted to go back and we debated where to go. And there have been many changes in Lesbos alone, let alone other places where I had not yet been on the route and for their hopeful freedom and new home. And this year I wanted to bring my wife, Catherine, because she hadn't come with me the time before she was working and unavailable. It affected me so dearly that I needed her to see it. And so we went with the International Rescue Committee again, this time to Lesbos, and saw such drastic changes. The roads were dirt in Karatepe, which was the major camp we had been at before. There were other camps we'd attended, which were less, far less nice. And these dirt roads had now been paved. The tents had been replaced by, um, not compartments, what are they? Containers. Containers, thank you. And uh, these containers are like what you see on construction sites. They have a little heat pump slash air conditioner in them. Uh, They're very small. They're clean. The the place was very clean. There were cooking centers, et cetera. But the unfortunate, and and you may well say Karatepe is as nice as a refugee resettlement camp can be, but it needs to be put out of business. And as nice as it is, Uh, The problem is it's become nicer because it's gone from a transient situation of five to 9,000 people a day going through on the the way to a hopeful sanctuary, and many of them trying to get to Germany and Switzerland and other places, to an indefinite long-term stay where they need health care, women's issues need attention and care in terms of violence toward women and psychological problems, children's issues, family issues, and education for children. And so now it's turning into a kind of permanent situation. But as you say, when these children grow up, they will be in a legal limbo? Hopefully they won't grow up in these camps. I mean, we're, we're, you know, that's part of what IRC's mission is, I think, is to put pressure on the larger world to say this is not a tenable situation. You know, we already have people living in an open-air impossible situation in one location in the world, and we don't want many more... It's a great question that you ask, though, because we met a beautiful family who has an extraordinarily gifted young son in Belgrade, Serbia, 
at a camp and a boy named Farad Nouri, 10-year-old boy who's an extraordinary artist. And Catherine immediately acquired art supplies to help him with his work, art books. We're trying all kinds of means to help his art education and hopefully get them into a place where he would like to go, the family would like to go to Switzerland and the United States to further all of their educations and, and life. But the possibility exists that he could be in this camp for many more months to come or an indefinite period of time, possibly getting asylum in Serbia, which this particular family doesn't want. A number of families want to go other places, and they're concerned about the economic crisis in places like Serbia or Greece, and they want other opportunity for their children. And But when you look at Farad Nouri and you hear the hope and the spirit in his voice, you see the beauty in his painting. Kath and I were talking about how long will he be there and what effect will that have in him and how will that change his view of the world and his vision and his drawings that are so full of life and hope and optimism. Will they become dark? Will he lose his interest in, in art? Will he give up? Will he become angry? What's what's the damage control? Well, one of the things that was so stunning to me was meeting all these kids in Serbia and in Greece. And their resilience is extraordinary. I mean, you would not they're not sitting there depressed and morose. I'm certain some of them are, but when you met them, they were rambunctious, they were playful, they were teasing each other, they were full of life. Um, and that's why I'm married to her, because she remembers that part. <laughs> I always talk about the other, and I encourage people everywhere to find a spouse who is the polar opposite of how you see the world. <laughs> yes, it works uh, that's way. wonderful, Mandy. I mean, they, they, uh, they are very hopeful, even in this state of limbo. And it's strange, because I feel very self-conscious walking through what I call people's sorrow. I'm a privileged person from here. I come and go from these places. And I always question, what good, is it doing any good for the people in those situations or is it just making me feel better and less impotent? And I remember a friend said to me a long time ago when I started working with Search for Common Ground, whose motto is understand differences, act on commonality. He said, one, you never underestimate the power of witness, that you take time out of your life to bear witness to somebody else's life. And you have no idea how that experience will change you. Catherine would look at some of these families, individuals that we would meet. And uh, I remember one particular woman named Zara, 18-year-old lady, who had a beautiful infant child who only wanted an education. She sought us out. She had previously taught Farad Faiz, no, no, Abid, Abid, English, another young boy, man. I loved him because he called me grandpa. And I don't have any grandchildren, so at least I was yet, made. Yet, huh? yet. That I was made a grandchild. <laughs> full of optimism <laughs> because I, I had to go to a, a refugee camp to become a grandfather, which life is strange. But, um, and, uh, but she sought us out because she wanted to tell her story. And she was pleading for attention and information and help to get out of this camp so she could have an education. And Catherine was weeping, listening to her, and turned to me with tears in a helpless fashion. And then Catherine looked at her and said, not wanting to give her false hope or false information, because there are no legal options right now to remind these people that they have. They don't exist right now. They need to be found through a solidarity effort by nations, the United Nations, the United States, members of the European Union. Everybody has to work together to create legal options. But Catherine looked at this young woman, Farah, and she says, you have a kind of strength that's 
completely foreign to myself and everyone I know where I come from. The fact that you've survived this war for how many years and how violent, and then made it through snow-capped mountains at night and journeys in the dark with other individuals or sometimes alone, and are standing here right now with your baby in your arms. And you have a strength that is uncanny and amazing to me. And we walk away witnessing their strength, witnessing their positive nature. So Catherine gave that back to her. Catherine was her mirror. You are witnesses, as you say. What can you share? What knowledge and information and awareness so that others can also take up the mantle and help solve these very complex problems? I call it micro and macro. I really think to be really aware of people's situation in your neighborhood, in your elevator, on your public transportation, in your school. If you see somebody that looks lost, if you feel that you see somebody that looks foreign and is frightened, give them a hello. Just say good morning. Find out who the people are in your neighborhood, in your schools, and see if you can connect with them. And then put pressure on the powers that be um, to stop using fear as a political tool and reminding people constantly of what this country is supposed to be, the great, brilliant idea of this country, that it's inclusive of everybody. Why is fear such a powerful weapon? It certainly is. You're right. I think fear is necessary. You don't know to run out of a burning building if you're not sensibly frightened. So you don't want to eradicate all fear. But when it's used for ill purposes, I just want to point out to answer your question and go back to one of the profound tragedies that I felt I understood, but I wanted to do a lot of research before we went on this journey. And I called members of the intelligence community that I'd become uh, acquaintances with because of the show Homeland. And I wanted a master level education as much as I could get over long three hour phone calls and a number of days of them to teach me everything I could understand about the vetting process. And I wanted to understand, was it safe? Because a lot of people, including our president of the United States, governors, congressmen, senators, ran on this fear saying that you vilify these people over here, this Muslim community, you need to be afraid of these people. They're telling people falsely that you need to be afraid of them. And if you elect me, if you vote for me, I will keep you safe. This is a global epidemic problem. This is what's going on all over the world right now. And, and the facts, and I don't like to usually spit out a bunch of facts and statistics because I'm a feeling person, but some of these facts are incredibly important. Since 1975, three million refugees have been resettled in the United States since 9-11, 900,000. The vetting process of the United States of America is known to be and thought to be worldwide as the gold standard of vetting. It is an 18-month to two-year process. You do not even get in the door until nine different systems of the UNHCR, the United Nations High Commission of Refugees, you visit them and they judge you as an individual or as a family whether or not you can even begin the process to judge whether you can make it through that 18-month to two-year process. So by the time you do and you get on that plane, you are vetted again. You get off that plane, you're vetted again. You're vetted again after one year before you get a green card. You get it five years later before you get citizenship, and you're vetted for the rest of your life. So the citizens that are vetted are the safest citizens in the United States of America. And they are your ancestors. They are the fabric of this country. Go around in your daily life and ask some people if they know any refugees. I was talking to my physical therapist 
because I'm at the age where things start going wrong. And she was working on my knee. And I was asking her and talking about refugees. And she said, well, I'm a refugee. I said, you mean your, your mother or your grandmother? No, me. This is a friend of mine for 30 years. I said, what are you talking about, Aunt Marika? And she said, she said yes, I was five years old when, when, when we left, and uh, when we left Hungary. And I remember it, my parents made it a game because all the other children were too small, so they were given medication to put them asleep to get over the mountains at night. As we heard two beautiful children, Hanefe and Atefe, in Karatepe tell us that they went through these mountains with snow up to their necks all night long. But they told it to us with like bright lights in their eyes. They were so excited. And my friend Marika, she was five and she said, I remember everything about it. I said, tell me about it. She said, my parents made it a game. How quiet we had to be at the checkpoints where we shouldn't be discovered or heard and the rustling of trees and how we had to tiptoe. And she remembered everything. But my point is, we're surrounded by refugees in our everyday life that we don't even realize. They're part of your life and your community. And, and we need to know that. We need to know it's who we are, who our parents and grandparents and great-grandparents are. And we need to break down these false fears, break down the walls, and encourage our leadership to stop these bans, welcome. There are currently 11,000 people, refugees, that have already been vetted, that are waiting to either be reunited with parts of their family or united or come here and their psychological ping pong game that they're playing because of all this false fear that's put up is crippling their families and their lives. You, you know, Catherine talked about listening. There's nothing more important. And nothing harder. And, and you don't listen with words sometimes. You listen to a person's silence, to their quiet, to their body. You appear and you're quiet and you encourage them to sometimes just hold your hand or recognize your presence because you respect them and you listen and they don't have to have your opinion and they don't have to vote the way you do. They just need to know that you respect them as a human being. And that is the greatest gift that has been lost that we need to rekindle and begin to teach ourselves and each other and grow at that skill every day. When we walked into a, a rat infested warehouse that needed to be torn to the ground to these beautiful 18 to 40 year old men that are vilified as the most dangerous, scary people on earth. They almost had tears in their eyes because I came in with a cameraman and a microphone and I was interested in hearing their story and they were just overwhelmed. And what they said, there was graffiti on the wall of this warehouse, which I thought was profound. Oh, yeah. It said, bombs kill terrorists, education kills terrorism and no one leaves say it again bombs kill terrorists education kills terrorism and no one leaves their home voluntarily unless their home is the mouth of a shark was written i mean these are young afghan men whose inter education afghan people hugely value education and there's his been made impossible, and all they want is to go someplace where they can continue that. You know, what can you do? You can do a lot. Politically, you can call your mayor, your congressman, your senator. You tell them to vote to help these people, to stop the bans, to bring down the walls, to encourage and welcome them to your community like our ancestors were welcome. 
And just in terms of my privilege to be a member and a helper with the International Rescue Committee, they have 29 centers across the United States of America. And they encourage you to go to their centers, as we have done. There's a family in Elizabeth, New Jersey, who we have made friends with, have dinners at their house. We brought them to New York for a poetry slam. Catherine took the teenagers to. Invite them to your community, your church, your temple, your mosque, your synagogue, your PTA meeting. Welcome them to your neighborhood. You can't imagine the power that this will have. Ask them. Go with an interpreter because if the kids are there, they'll know the language. They'll have already learned enough English. But mom and dad, it's a slower process. Ask them about their journey, how they are. Just be with them. Listen to them. Don't even say anything if you don't want to. Just be company. You can't imagine what a gift you will give. And in terms of your own self, you can't give yourself a greater gift. How has this experience changed you most profoundly? Wow. It's made me wish I could do human rights work the rest of my life to be able to be in some strange position because I'm an actor on a television show or in movies or I do concerts. And because of that, I guess the word is celebrity, that I am allowed to go places and be the voice for those who aren't able to find a way to express their voice. I just never even dreamed that a gift like that would ever be given to me. I always thought that I was there to give voice to Shakespeare or Sondheim or Ibsen or Chekhov. I never realized my voice was in this world to give voice to Farad Nouri or Farad Faiz or any of these beautiful families that we've met. It is one of the privileges of my life. If you say to me, well, what are you doing for them? I'm telling their story, as I promised them we would. I'm taking it everywhere and anywhere as far as I can. I'm keeping their struggle front and center on the table wherever and whenever I can so that they are never forgotten. And in prayer and hope that I can somehow get someone to hear my voice on their behalf, to trigger their energy as a politician or leader or someone who has yet chosen to go into politics and maybe will, and work together internationally, collectively, nation, with nation, to make laws, to bring these people to safe sanctuary and the lives that they deserve. Thanks again to our guests, Mandy, Catherine, and Alan, for talking with us and for their commitment to sharing these unthinkable stories of human suffering with the world. And thank you for joining us. To learn more about Alan's novels or to see some of Mandy and Catherine's inspiring work with the International Rescue Committee, check the show notes or go to scholasticreads.com. Is there a topic you'd like us to discuss? We'd love to hear from you. Send a note to scholasticreads at scholastic.com. To help other book lovers find us, please review and subscribe to Scholastic Reads on your favorite podcast app. Special thanks to producer Emily Morrow, sound engineers Daniel Jordan and Chris Johnson, and music composer Lucas Elliott Eberl. I'm Suzanne McCabe. We look forward to sharing more Scholastic Reads with you next time.